Hi FM presents South African politics and news with the South African Institute of Race Relations. The IRR show, independent, relevant and real, is hosted by Big Daddy Liberty and Sarah Gon every Tuesday morning from 9 to 10, promoting life, liberty and property rights. Moro Sambonani, hello, how's it? And welcome to another episode of the IRR show. It is a Tuesday morning. And, uh, yeah, you know what that means. We are about to look at the news week through the lens of classical liberalism. My name is Big Daddy Liberty. And of course, I am joined by Sarah Gunn. Sarah, good morning. Uh, morning. Hi, Sifle. Hello, hello. Good to, uh, good to be on the show with you again. We do have a very interesting show. Someone who I think we're going to introduce to the listeners. Uh, I had him on my show last uh, on Sunday night. Uh, I'm talking, of course, about the newly appointed chief of staff at the Institute of Race Relations, John Endres, who is someone who I think provides very solid political analysis. Um, so we're going to have him on at the 20th minute mark for our major guest interview. But before that, as always, we always look at the news week that was. What got you interested? What got you talking? Um, what are some of the major themes that I think South Africans are chatting about right now? Um, Sarah, I'm going to throw it to you immediately. Um, and uh, basically, the, the, the sort of um, the, the growing discontent among South Africans regarding the South African government and its inability to deal with corruption um, th- this seems to be a, a major theme, especially when the, you tie in a whole bunch of things that have happened in the week. For example, mm. the IMF loan. Uh, what's been your, your reading of this? Okay. Um, look, we've been complaining bitterly about corruption for probably much of the last 10 years um, uh, because Jacob Zuma, Zuma refined it to an art of extraordinary proportions. And we've become aware very quickly of the damage it's done to the society and the economy. Um so when the president has spoken about battling, you know, fighting corruption, etc., one doesn't take him seriously because corruption is very corruption at, at the state level is very much a feature of a cadre deployment policy, which is the official policy of of the ANC, which puts people who are connected to the ANC in positions to advance the ANC uh, uh, growth and and support, and then that tied to. Uh, Triple B, double E, that's a broad-based back economic empowerment. The two end up creating a, an environment that is absolutely rife for, for corruption. And in reality, there's probably no one or almost no one in the ANC who hasn't benefited in one form or the other. And what's happened, I think, with the, with the IMF, the, off, the agreement to loan us money to deal with COVID is Part of it is to account for how that money is spent. And this must have sent the ANC hierarchy into a complete and utter tiz because, of course, they, they don't, they've never accounted for money that has been spent and thus has allowed it to be corrupted and stolen. And suddenly they now have to actually put their money where their supposed mouths are. And I think this has caused enormous, enormous stress because the, every day someone comes up and says, no, we're going to tackle the corruption and we might have made mistakes in the past, but we're really going to tackle it. And it's got itself tied up in knots and as a result, it's, there's almost, I don't think there's anything it can do about corruption. I mean, they're currently looking at the state of 102 contracts related to COVID um, supplies. 
Mm. 102 contracts, and that's probably only the start of it. Mm. And it's obviously coming, becoming apparent that a part of the corruption chain is the fact that in this whole process, Key is giving contracts to to family and friends, and this mm. is really starting to re- to create twists within uh, the ANC family, and it's uh, and they they're tearing themselves apart over it. <clears throat> yeah, no, absolutely. One gets the sense that um, there is a growing drift between, uh, by and large, the political elite uh, in this country, and all of them, by the way, mm-hmm. um, and and ordinary South Africans who recognise not only the current terrible state of things, or even people who, who never thought they'd ever become, um, you know, the sort of state dependents mm, that they're mm. becoming now, are finding themselves, you know, in deeper and deeper economic trouble. Mm. The growing drift, therefore, is, is, is almost informing a sharper consciousness around should government be borrowing this sort of money when its mm. systems are so corrupt mm. and the money is disappearing to the pockets of, of a political elite. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, just to, just to sort of take another tack, the, the Kasato and the South African Communist Party have made very strong statements against the ANC and Cyril Ramaphosa, particularly their failure to deal with corruption. Um, well, this is sort of, you know, they talk about a crisis upon a crisis. Well, this is hypocrisy upon hypocrisy. Um, because the, Kasato, the two, there are two aspects. Both parties are in the tripartite alliance. So they can't now suddenly divest themselves of the responsibility of governing because the ANC's dealing with or not dealing with corruption is embarrassing them. That's the one thing. The second thing, particularly with Kasatu, is that it's had its fair share of some fairly corrupt and uh, unlawful, illegal uh, uh, activities. You know, peop- uh, uh, officials have stolen membership fees, they've stolen pension fund fees, etc., etc. And the, the, the daddy of them all, the South African Democratic Tra- uh, Teachers Union, which is the big union in in uh, Kasatu and which is doing our education system no no favors. A few years ago, was very clearly fingered as having been involved in corrupt practices regarding. Uh, paying for people to put into teachers' positions mm. and have been accused and of of being really in control of six out of nine educational depart- uh, provincial educational departments. Mm. Now, a task team was appointed, a, a, a report was, was, was created. Nothing ever came of it. So, it, it, frankly, it's really rather... On the one hand, there's a sort of sick humour to all of this, and on the other hand, it's the, 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 the hypocrisy... And the finality is 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 just dreadful. Mm, absolutely, and uh, maybe as a final thought before we get to that twentieth minute mark, minute mark. Excuse me. Remember to the listeners, we're going to have uh, John Endres on for a uh, just a, a an analysis to maybe continue the conversation around you know some of the big developments that have happened in the news weekend. Really, to get to know the man also, um, as he will be a somewhat regular um, on the show. But uh, sorry, maybe your last thought before the break. Um, you know, th- there's a lot of ructions happening just north of our border also, um, mm-hmm. you know, with Zimbabweans taking to the streets and protesting. Mm-hmm. And one almost feels a sense, and you almost see this on, on, on social media, that there haven't been a hashtag Zimbabwean Lives Matter, um, mm-hmm. that, you know, South Africans feel as though maybe that's the direction we may be heading. 
Mm-hmm. No, no, it's 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 uh, it's absolutely right. I mean, the only reason perhaps we would head there less obviously and less quickly is, is because of the size of our economy um, mm. to start with. Um, so there was that much more to take over that much longer period of time, and there hasn't been that distinctively um, authoritarian character right at the centre of governance as there was with Robert Mugabe. Um, but it's a, it, you know, it threatens to be a matter of form, not substance, mm. and that's. That, that's absolutely that adds the worry. Absolutely. With that, let me go to our first ad break. After the break, our conversation with John Andres. Hi FM, your station of choice since two thousand and eight. Alrighty, welcome back to the IRR show. As I mentioned before the break, we're joined in studio by the newly appointed chief of staff at the Institute of Race Relations, John Andres, someone who. I had on the show on Sunday, Late Nights with Big Daddy Liberty. Um, John, good morning and welcome to the show. Good morning, Sichle. How are you doing? Good, brother. Welcome, welcome. And, um, yeah, look, look we, just before the break, uh, John, we, we, you know, as we always do on the IRR show, we look at some of the topical, you know, things that made, um, the news, not only last week, but also just recently in, in the weekend papers. And, um, you know, we were just chatting, sorry, and it, it seems as though the, the major issue at the moment is, uh, the, shall I call it the fight between the ordinary public and politicians and the growing mistrust around how the state handles finances, period, and how this is being brought, brought into sharp focus given the now, you know, sort of the loans we seem to be dependent on, such as the IMF loan, et cetera, et cetera. Um, before we get into that, as I always do, um, maybe just a quick, a quick, um, uh, you know, who, who is John Andreas? You know, like, uh, um, you know, what, what do you do at the IRR and what's your history? Uh, well, thanks for asking, Sichle. Um I have a checkered history. Um, I've worked <laughs> in business. I've worked in the nonprofit sector, um, but I've always been involved with liberal ideas and the battle for liberal ideas. Um, so to be right at the the forefront of the the, the battle of ideas in South Africa is just a, a great, great thing. I'm really happy to have joined the RRR, which I think is a preeminent institution in the fight for these ideas. Absolutely, absolutely. Sorry. Um, John, can I just ask you a question coming out, coming out of that? Um, were you, did you grow up in a classically liberal environment or was, did you come to classical liberalism at a later stage? Um, so I grew up in, a, in an apolitical household. But I think the principles that uh, underlie how I grew up were liberal principles. Um, and later, then, when I studied at university in Germany, uh, the, the business school where I studied was quite strongly liberal. I think it was probably 60%, 70% liberal. And that, that certainly left its mark on me. Ah, okay. Um, just a further question before we get into the general malaise of, of, of the day, shall we put it that way. Um, Classical liberalism, um, to me, is can be is, is, is can be described in, in simple, straightforward terms. It doesn't use jargon. It uses words like freedom, uh, ownership, words that you know, ordinary English words. Why is it so maligned, and particularly by those uh, those who follow uh, political philosophies that are laden with jargon that is often difficult, if not impossible, to understand? I think it is a, it's probably a, a clash of, of cultures and value systems. Um, 
And the way it's presented often is that collectivist philosophies um, of the left uh, claim to care about the well-being of others. Um, they claim to be very compassionate philosophies. And I think that also explains part of their appeal. And if you contrast that with the classical liberal approach, which focuses on the individual and their own ability to make a difference in their own lives, that can seem quite uh, not, not so compassionate. The irony, I think, is that appearances to the contrary. The liberal approach leads to much better outcomes for individuals, but also for groups of individuals. Um, and the collectivist approach leads to worse outcomes. And that's quite ironic, but um, that's how it is. Well, I guess now we're dealing with a collectivist, <laughs> collectivist approach to uh, South African governance. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and, and, and maybe let me zoom into this because, you know, uh, John, let me pick up the conversation we had on Sunday. And, um, you know, it's the growing uh, – so the, I would argue that there is an inability by most of Africans to articulate their anger in a way in which government will understand it um, and juxtaposing that understanding, if you will, with the erosion of rights. Like, let me be precise and specific. As classical liberals, we talk a lot about the need for South Africans and all people, really, to defend and advance their life, liberty, and property. Um, and it seems as though a lot of what's happened in South Africa very recently, brought into sharp focus by the lockdown, has been to assault those very three rights. Um, and you look at the various news articles that have obviously um, cropped up, it seems as though what it, 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 the issue always involves an assault on either an individual's right to life or you know, our freedoms, as the lockdown has been, or our property rights. Now, the topical one that we had in mind was the IMF loan, of course, um, and the various, um, you know, the, the, the communication around it by, by government and IMF itself. What's, what's your reading been of the IMF loan and really um, the ANC's, um, uh, uh, you know, sort of the, the, the fight we're now seeing in a way between Tito Mboweni and, and the rest of cabinet? Well, I think that was... Uh it took a lot of arguing within the ANC to come to the decision to even apply for the IMF loan. Mm. For many, many years, that has been a taboo for the party, uh, going back all the way to, to Mandela and Mbeki, you know, who wanted South Africa to be uh, independent and to be sovereign and to be able to make its own decisions and not be beholden to foreign lenders. Um, but the country has now arrived at a point where it could not avoid that step any longer and had to go to international financing organizations, primarily the IMF, but also the New Development Bank, also the African Development Bank, and possibly in the future even the World Bank, in order to uh, raise funds to finance its activities, basically. Um, but the conflict that this created with the ANC, I think, has now spilled out into the open, um, we saw a, the press conference for, by President Ramaphosa about one and a half weeks ago where he announced the creation of a special unit to investigate COVID-related corruption. And I think he would not have announced that unit had it not been for the IMF loan application. So South Africa wanted to present itself in a good light and to show international lenders that it would treat their money responsibly um, and ensure that it would not be wasted and misspent. Uh, so Ramaphosa was trying to signal on that. Uh, other government entities have tried to do the same. But ultimately what has happened is that people have realized how much money is being stolen and they've been become oh. very, very unhappy, especially over the past week. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's sure. what... Uh, uh, sorry, sorry, yeah, sorry, go ahead. 
No, uh, I was just going to say, um, no, go ahead, because I'll come back. This is not corruption related in the, in the, in the, in the normal sure. sense. Sure. I just wanted to follow up, but by, by then maybe posing just the, the question differently. It, it, it seems as though um, that not only are people frustrated at the corruption, but it's also brought into sharp focus, you know, the the, the seeming randomness of decision making by the state mm-hmm. um, and, the, and the misplacing of, of priorities. For instance, why do we have such a concerted uh, communication strive by the state in relation to its borrowing practices? So why do they reassure, for instance, that you know they'll tackle corruption, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, when it comes to you know you know trying to reassure, for, for instance. For, um, Foreign lenders on the issue that, you know, governance, the governance structures are strong enough to, to look after that money, but they don't, they aren't as seemingly, um, you know, prudent and careful with, of our money that they, they derive from taxes. Um, and maybe as I frame that question that way, let me segue also into another area that, that maybe speaks to the growing anger from the public around the arbitrariness of, of, of decision making. The prohibition, for instance, um, of alcohol and and cigarettes and our movements. Remember, I said we always view things through the, the prism of life, liberty, and property rights. Um, what's been your read on that? Um, you know, does does the ANT are they embarking on a self-destructive path here? Like, like how does this win an election for a political party? No, I think it's not intentional. Um, so I think underlying their thinking is the idea that the government does things. Uh, for you, for your own good. So it makes decisions on your behalf. It bans certain things which it thinks are dangerous for you. Um, and so its intentions are benevolent, but the outcomes are not. Um, mm. The reason for that is because letting highly complex decisions be made by very small groups of people that affect very large groups of people bears the inherent risk that those decisions may be wrong. And then you get big devastation, which is what we're seeing in the economy right now. And the the opposite approach that we would choose would be one that gives more autonomy to the individual to decide how to react to this crisis. The coronavirus crisis is a crisis. It needs a response, but um, it is a response that well-informed individuals are able to formulate for themselves. And they do not need to be, uh, you know, ordered to do certain things and not do other things, I think. Uh, uh. In fact, that, that's, that's where my question was going to lie, is aren't we looking at um, really a combination between the sort of more autocratic mode of a sort of socialist-inclined government who knows better what it, who knows better for you what is good for you than, than you do yourself, and simply no understanding of how business works. And with specific reference to the regulations that have come from someone like Nkuzazana Lamini Zuma and Ibrahim Patel, they don't understand business. So she thinks that they can sort of open and close the alcohol industry with no regard or perhaps even understanding of the fact that the glass industry, um, the the transport industry that supports it, the stocking of shelves in supermarkets, everything has a ratchet effect that if you if you lose those opportunities once, reopening is not going to get those opportunities back for you. Um, I, I and my my concern and perhaps you could comment on this is that this is perhaps way, way more destructive of of of, uh, of the economy than than blatant corruption. That's true. And that's the, the, the worrying effect is that you see the collapse of supply chains. Mm. You know, so you, you close down one industry, but that industry buys supplies from other industries that are further upstream. 
And when those industries also can't sell their goods anymore, they also get into trouble. And in this way, it, you know, it ripples through, through the economy. It creates very widespread destruction. And following on, on what you were saying earlier, I think that there's also a lack of understanding of the existence of trade-offs. Mm. So every decision you make uh, in a country or even in your own life mm. has trade-offs. You know, it's mm. a, it has a good side and a bad side. Mm. And mm. the uh, alcohol ban, for example, uh, serves certain purposes to relieve pressure on hospitals, for example, uh, to reduce violence in the home um, and other ill effects associated with excessive alcohol consumption. But as always, there is a trade-off, and the trade-off is, in this case, partly economic. In other words, entire industries are going out of business. But it is also a curtailment um, on everybody's freedom mm -hmm. as a result of irresponsible behavior on the part of some people. So there was a statistic published last week, um, maybe it was this week as part of the crime statistics, that 8.4% uh, of crimes involved the use of alcohol, but the, the reverse is also true that 91.6% of crimes do not involve mm. the use of alcohol. So you're punishing 90% of the people because of the bad behavior of 10% of the people, and that mm. is quite a, quite a, a brutal way of doing things. Isn't that a form of sort of, let's say, uh, uh, instant social engineering? In other words, you, you've got a societal problem, say, with, with alcohol or uh, lung cancer as a result of smoking. And the way you're going to deal with it is, ha, here's the opportunity, we'll ban them. Done. Mm. And, and it's that, it's, it's that sort of, you know, taking the moment, but it's not actually, it's actually just creating larger problems. Yeah. There's also an inherent contradiction in, and the desire to have greater control and the ability to have greater control. Mm. And in South Africa, one good example of this was the whole cater deployment policy, where the intention of the ANC was to gain greater control over the country, especially the public administration, but also large business, by ensuring that people in positions of power were loyal ANC members who would do the party's bidding and make sure that its will was carried out. But the consequence has been that many of these cadres were either too corrupt or too incompetent mm. to perform their duties well. And what this has resulted in, I think, is increased dissatisfaction with the ANC and a loss of control. So if you think of the many protests that take place in South Africa every year, if you think of councillors' houses being burned down because residents are unhappy with the service they're getting, if you think about the dissatisfaction that is now being expressed on social media, all of these are indications that the desire to impose greater control is failing. Uh, the, the, the more the ANC tries to pull on the reins and to impose its will on the people, the more people resist. I, I think people don't want that. I've, I've gotten a sense, John, um, if I look at the, the ANC, and I, I made this point on the show, that it, it does feel as though the ANC has also come to a very quiet realization that, that the, the notion of total control of our society is actually one which is impossible for them to achieve, regardless of their underlying ideology convincing them that that's a goal they should strive for. Um, you saw, for instance, with the quick step down from level five and level four, 
um, uh, lockdown, when they realized, for instance, that the, the, the policing mechanism that they sick onto the public to achieve this was lugubrious in nature, it was violent in nature. And it wasn't a vote winner, for instance, for any politician who would then have to come back to a community and ask those same people who were beaten up by security forces for votes. Um, maybe I, I, I frame this question on purpose because I'm looking at what's happening north of our border in Zimbabwe, where there's mass protests at the moment and a, a violent crackdown by the government, which led to a hashtag on social media yesterday, trended for most of the day, Zimbabwean lives must fall. Talk to me about maybe your read around the ANC's uh, view on it becoming an authoritarian force. Do you think they still have an appetite for it? Or maybe they just are reloading, so to speak? Or do they have a different outlook uh, in your view? I think that as they are constituted at the moment, that's unlikely to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it is possible to, to assert total control through violence and coercion. Um, but I don't see that in the current ANC. If there's a change in leadership, maybe that will happen. What I'm seeing at the moment is that there is the desire for control and for centralization of power, but it is still mostly kept within the boundaries of democracy and and human rights. Uh, And uh, I have the hope that even if they decided to impose total control through coercive force, uh, they wouldn't be able to do it because the resistance would be too great and their own ability to hold it together would be too low. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I've got two questions I want to ask you are burning. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a break, uh, Sarah, now. Okay. Just a little bit more time at the, uh, after the break. After the break, we'll stay in conversation with John Andres, especially as I begin to ask him around, you know, his, um, I'm going to, I'm going to ask him to play a, a little bit of divination here, look into the future. What do we expect <laughs> from our politics going forward? Um, let's take a quick break and we'll have a chat right after this. Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. All right, welcome back to the IRR show. We are in conversation with uh, chief of staff at the Institute of Race Relations, John Enders. Um, John, we to ask you to look ahead in terms of what you uh, forecast the, the political environment in this country will, will lead us to. Uh, let's zoom in on another area <clears throat> that I want to have a, a brief chat on. The, the, the South African family in South Africa has seen um, a decline in living standards in very real terms. And we we're chatting about this before we actually had her on the show, that even people who maybe historically had seen themselves as being middle class and enjoying a high quality of life are now finding themselves almost even becoming the state dependents they never thought they'll be. Um, and the, the question sort of I, I really want to angle towards is, on the one hand, what's your read of this being in terms of the political ramifications um, for the ANC and other political parties in the country? And are there political parties in the opposition throughout this lockdown period that have maybe shone for you, um, who, have, who have capitalized on this moment? Can the EFF be put in that category? For instance, what's your read being like of opposition parties um, throughout this lockdown period? My impression is that during the lockdown the, the ANC has very much dominated the public discourse. Mm-hmm. I think you know, even for, for purely practical reasons, because it has been more able to to be active uh, than anybody else in South Africa, and that includes the opposition political parties. So the EFF, for example, you know, relies on rallies and mass meetings. Those haven't really been possible uh, during this time. 
the DA has made a very valiant effort, I think, at continuing its work online um, and probably has done best out of all the opposition parties to keep communicating with the voters. So the EFF, I think, has been very quiet. Um, they'll probably turn up again once uh, more free movement is possible. And the DA, I think, has made a very good uh, show of continuing to communicate with the public through electronic uh, channels. Um, okay. Uh, but I'm going to be a little controversial here, so bear with me. <laughs> um, Go ahead. <laughs> uh, um, I, I'm going to play devil's advocate, and I, I want to see how you respond to it. Now, I would say something along the lines of, yeah, but Johnny, you, you'd say that, of course, but um, in reality, uh, I, I don't think... Uh, any of the shenanigans we've seen in our politics um, under level five, level four, and where we are now, have even even uh, have even uh, dented the ANC. They're going to be absolutely fine in this election. Um, if you agree with that, uh, tell me why. And if you disagree, what makes you disagree with that sentiment that the ANC will be absolutely fine and unscathed um, in in the upcoming elections? So uh, I don't think they will be unscathed. Uh, but currently, I don't think the reason for that is the action of opposition parties. So I think that the IMF loan, the revelations about corruption, the repression during the lockdown, and the irrational and contradictory policies will all lead to a decline in ANC support. My feeling at the moment is that we are entering a, a period of turbulence where things can change very fast from one day to the next and that the ANC is aware of this. They know that it's not that long to go before the local government elections next year. They are worried that they will see a massive decline in support, and I think they're right to be worried. They would probably like to shift the elections out, move them up to maybe 2024, but I don't think they'll be able to do that. And my anticipation is that we'll see a lot more coalition politics in South Africa than we have in the past, uh, which will often be very unstable. Mm. What do you see from uh, oh, Sorry, go ahead, Sarah. No, no, no. I was going to come to a different point. Uh, carry on. Um, yeah, so our experience with coalition politics, I think, has been that they can be quite unstable. If you think of mm-hmm. uh, Johannesburg, Swane, um, Nelson Mandela Metropolitan, very difficult to manage. And so mm-hmm. uh, what I see ahead is, is a messy, quite a messy time in, in terms of politics. I think the ANC is going to lose its hegemony. Um, but it will still try to retain some control through coalitions as much as possible. But its, uh, its star is on the, on the wane. Talking, talking of stars being on the wane, um, Cyril Ramaphosa's reputation after all of this. I mean, uh, I hate to say to everyone I told them so, but I started writing, I think, in about 2016 and regularly since then to say that he is not our saviour. Um, he, he's a straw man. He's just, he's, he's really, there is almost, there's nothing to him that would make him a good leader. And, and the response generally was, no, no, you know, he's a, he's a businessman, he's a pragmatist, he's, the, and he's been none of those things. And, and this seems to have finally tipped generally for the public, towards his, I suppose, emasculation. Um, Is he likely to see a second term? Um, I think he might, yes. And the reason is because despite the – I think he has been taken down off the pedestal. Um, He's no longer seen as the savior figure that he once was. But I think he's generally still well-liked. And the ANC, being in the dire straits that it is in, uh, will probably not want to change horses mid-course, mid mid-race. So I think they're going to stick with Ramaphosa. 
also because he is, you know, uh, is avuncular and amiable, mm. and many mm. people like him. And what we've seen is that even when ANC support in polls has dropped, Ramaphosa's personal support remained very high. He's quite popular. So at the moment, my feeling is that he'll he'll remain. Good. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not um, good for us because, um, uh, yes. as you say, you know, he hasn't really been good on forms. Uh, John, maybe as we head to our last sort of uh, four minutes in conversation, this is what, really what I want to to to, to ask and get your your sense on as we we head forward uh, or we look forward rather in our political landscape. Um, let me begin with the economy. How much of a role do you think the South African economy will play in the politics of today and maybe going forward? And I'll have a follow-up question to that, but your, your, your view on the economy and how much of a role it will play? So usually I'd say that strongly performing economies favor the incumbent, mm. and the opposite also holds true. So when an economy is weak and battling, then often it opens up space for alternative views to be put forward, and I think that is the case now. In other words, we, because of coronavirus and the, the pre-existing structural weakness of the economy, people are really beginning to be fed up. You know, we're, we're seeing it in our personal incomes. You know, everybody's having to cut back. Businesses are dying. And there's a great, great level of frustration about this. People, are, I think, will be willing to try something else. And it doesn't look like the ANC is offering anything else. Yeah. Now, that, that, that maybe brings me to my, my next area which is perhaps one of concern, do you feel as though in the political landscape, in the battle of ideas in the, in the current political landscape, do you think South African liberals generally have done enough to sway society in one direction? Because a lot of people will say, yes, of course, change is coming in our politics, but that change need not necessarily mean a change for the better in terms of the ideas climate. Um, maybe as a final thought from, from my side, a final question, please, from my side, what's your view on this? Are South African liberals doing enough to win the battle of ideas? My, my impression is that the South African liberal voice is quite a small voice. Um, mm. and I wish it were bigger and louder, because I do think that there is fertile soil for its ideas. Um, South Africans on the whole are quite moderate. Um, mm-hmm. A surprising thing about the EFF, I think, is that with 50% youth unemployment, does not manage to get more than 18% of the youth vote. Mm. And that is not a sign of a you know, radicalized, uh, terribly angry youth. That is a sign of a remarkably generous um, youth that is moderate and that wants to be, to have the opportunity to make something of their own lives on their own terms. Um, and I also think that the liberal idea has it's very strong in South Africa because of the whole idea of liberation. Mm. Um, the apartheid system was a repressive system. It was a system that told people where they could live, where they could move, who they could marry, where they could work. And people, I think, learned that lesson, that that is not how you want to live your life. You want to be able to make those decisions for yourself. And uh, that is the idea that needs to be strengthened. That I think mm. that we as liberals must push very, very hard for. You know, people should be free to live their lives the way they choose. Mm-hmm. Essentially, uh, I mean, I, I, I think South Africans, the, the vast majority of South Africans have a, an innately, innate common sense and they're conservative. They, they have a, a sort of family 
um, ethic, even if in some areas families are fractured. But they, when, I remember just listening, watching some of the video, uh, videos of, of Sifle's interviews he's done with ordinary people. You're looking at young professionals, say taxi drivers or people trying to sit on the side of the road who talked about trying to support families. Mm. And I think this is something that the ANC was, has just either ignored or fa- failed to pay attention to. Yeah. Maybe if I can throw a thought in there, it's the thought of dignity. Mm. And the whole redistributionist ethos uh, of the ANC is one that does not support dignity. You know, mm. you, you cannot be dignified, you cannot feel that you have dignity if you are dependent on the handouts of others and on the good, you know, good graces of, of the government. I think in order to, to build a sense of self-worth and dignity, you need to know that you can achieve things for yourself. And you need to be given that opportunity. And that's what, re- what it is really about, you know, making people feel that they, are, that they are valuable members of society and that they can contribute and that, 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 you know, that society cares about them. And I think it's mm-hmm. not good enough you know, just to give people RDP houses and give them a grant and say, be happy. It's, it's Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. On that note, um, John, let me thank you for having joined us. Our time has run out. Um, that, of course, is John Andres from the Institute of Race Relations, the chief of staff in that part of the world. He's someone who we'll have on the show again. John, thanks for joining us. Thank you so thanks, much, and Sarah. Awesome. After the break, we wrap up the show and tell you what you can expect, perhaps, in the Newsweek ahead. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. Right. Sifle, what are we, we've got to look at what we're going to do next week. Uh, or during the week. Um, Absolutely. I, I think that there are two issues. The one is going to be this ongoing fight against corruption, but it's going to, I think, be overlaid by the fact that they have now issued warrants against or uh, uh, against all the bad guys at ESCOM, if I can put it this way, the Molefes, the Korkos, the Pemenskis, the Anosh Singh, the, 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 the whole bang shooty. And it's almost as if it's, for, for me, it almost, it less matters where they get with it than that they're actually doing it to seeing those pe- people like that being put under the microscope. And I think that might, that might pick up in light of the anti-corruption uh, drive. But I think the anti-corruption drive is also going to continue to be a source of, fra- of, of fracture within the ANC. Absolutely. No, I agree. I think, uh, for a lot of South Africans, the, 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 you know, the proof will be in the pudding and the testing of it, at the very least. You know, we've got to start seeing prosecutions. Um, we, we often hear the, the, the tired rhetoric in this country of so-and-so is being probed <laughs> or a probe yes. is being launched. Um, but I think South Africans, just for a sense of justice in this country, I think South Africans are absolutely keen to start hearing that so-and-so has actually been prosecuted and is literally about to put on some red overall. So um, I'll also be looking forward or rather looking at that issue, keeping an eye on it. And the other issue, of course, on the Big Daddy Liberty Show this week is I look at South African sense, the growing sense of um, fear in this country, especially in the back of the crime stats, which often say one thing, but the lived experience of the average South African is something totally different. So tomorrow on the show, I'm going to have two chaps who I think the listeners should pay attention to um, as we talk about the issue of crime in South Africa and also specifically how you, the individual, can defend yourself um, and, you know, we'll look at the issue of gun rights in that regard too and the need for reform in that space. So that's what I'll be chatting about this week. 
And uh, on the Friday show here on Chai, you can look forward to a conversation with the tobacco and the liquor industry in this country. What has been the impact of this lockdown and the regulations by the state on ordinary people who work on these industries? So we'll unpack that this Friday. You can look forward to that on the show. Sorry, your last word before we wrap up. Um, I'm not sure I have a last word. It's, it's, it's like all rather overwhelming. But I think what, what these uh, issues are going to raise is it's going to start to cause those in power to really look at the fundamentals of black economic empowerment and that triple B double E is not the only way or even the correct way of dealing with it since only between 10 and 30,000 people benefit. Absolutely. So we, I think we can examine that at a later stage. Absolutely. And on that note, let me say goodbye to every single one of you who was joining us on the show. Thank you so much for listening to the IRR show. A big special thanks to our producers um, and the technical team behind this. Guys, you've been listening to the IRR show. We'll see you next week, Tuesday.